Thank you so much. Please take your Bibles, and we're going to go to Daniel chapter 11 today. And I have a simple question. Who are you serving? Who are you serving? We can only serve God or Satan in the final analysis. This passage twice uses a phrase, they do exploits. And it caught my attention because one time it's used of prophetically Antiochus Epiphanes, who does exploits for the devil. He's serving Satan. The other time it's used, and the fulfillment of its use, is the Maccabees, and they serve God. So let's look at these two verses, and then we'll pray. Daniel chapter 11, verse 28, and then Daniel chapter 11, verse 32. It says, Then shall he return into his land with great riches. Now this is prophecy fulfilled by a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. And it says, and his heart shall be against the Holy Covenant. So he's against God. If you're against the word of God, you're on the wrong side. You're on the devil's side. And it says, and he shall do exploits and return to his own land. So he does exploits for Satan. Verse 32. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. They do exploits, but they do them for God. So that caught my attention. So that's the message today. Who are you serving? Doing exploits means to do something great, to accomplish great things. Who will you do great things for? Who are you serving? Let's pray. Thank you now, Lord, for this day. Help us as we proclaim your love. May your love draw each one under the sound of my voice to you, Lord, that we would serve you, O God, because you are worthy. You love us so much. So work, draw us to yourself by your love, and then change us by your truth. Transform us and give us power and strength to make it through the journey of this life so that we could receive a, even a reward from you, Lord, even if we could receive one crown from you to cast it at your feet. We would be so more than honored to do that, O oh God. Help us to serve you, O oh Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So on this Memorial Day weekend, I thought about our nation and our history one of the very first special operations in the history of our, of our nation and the United States military was on, on a stormy night in August 29, 1776. It was a stormy time, like a nor'easter in August, similar to what we're even experiencing now. The United States Army faced being captured or annihilated by the Britons. Their backs were against the wall. They were in Brooklyn Heights, Brooklyn. The East River was right behind them. They were trapped. They had lost the battle. They had been dis almost destroyed. There were about 9,000 of our military scattered in forts along the East River side of Brooklyn. That's why you have a park even there called Fort Green Park, and I'll show you a picture of that. But one of the battles was fought near this old stone house still standing on 3rd Street in Brooklyn. And then Washington's War Council met in secrecy because there were British loyalists still in Brooklyn who could tell what, what their plans were. So they met in secrecy. There is a plaque right along the Brooklyn Promenade, right overlooking Manhattan, speaking of that War Council meeting in the headquarters called the Four Chimneys with Washington and his War Council. It was just eight weeks since the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And already the revolution looked over. But that night, as Washington's army was demoralized, exhausted, hungry, and defeating, defeated, a regiment of men, of 
multiple ethnicities rode down the East River. These were the men from Marblehead, Massachusetts. They were called the men of Marblehead. These were men seasoned in the, in the sea. They had experienced tough times as merchantmen in that area outside of Boston, of Marblehead, Massachusetts, one of the most important regiments of the Revolutionary War. And Washington decided that this night to evacuate his entire army across the East River. And it was the men of Marblehead who did exploits for God that night. Under the cover of darkness, with strict secrecy, they evacuated 9,500 men across the East River along with all of their equipment, their ammunition. And I'm reading a fantastic book called The Indispensables about these men. And they were white men. They were black men. They were Spanish men. They were Native American Indian men. A, a multi-ethnic regiment of men. Some made the trip 11 times across the river that night to evacuate the army so they could fight another day. And God intervened. One man wrote, Providence interposed in favor of the retreating army. The next morning there was a thick fog so the Brits could not see six feet in front of them. There was a shifting wind in favor of the, the retreat so that the whole army was safe. And also there was a British loyalist who sent a message to the British army. But when they got to the British side, they gave the message to the Hessians who spoke German. So they couldn't get the message to the Brits that the Americans were evacuating. It's quite an amazing thing. The history that is right here in our own city. And so here's Fort Greene Park in Brooklyn. There's a picture of, uh, of the Continental Army being evacuated that night. And it was these same men of Marblehead, the Marblehead men of Massachusetts who brought Washington across the Delaware River in the in the icy, wintry storm that Christmas later on that year. They, they, were, they were like Navy SEALs. These were trained men. These were not just duffers. These were men who understood the sea and, and who they, they, were, they were dedicated to the task and they were trained to, for it as well. On this Memorial Day, though, I thought of this as well, that after they evacuated Brooklyn, Brooklyn came under the control of the British Army for the rest of the revolution. And they used the East River to house the prisoners of war in ships right there along the East River. And there, this, this monument stands at Fort Greene Park today. It's called the Prison Ship Martyrs Monument. I had never heard of it, sad to say. I don't, have you ever heard of it yourself? Right there. And it's to remember the over 11,000 Men who died in those ships of starvation and malnutrition during our Revolutionary War. These were men, many of whom I'm sure knew the Lord. I hope they did. But they intervened for us. They did exploits, if you will, for our freedoms that we have today. So many do great things in life. Who will we do them for? That's the question we ask ourselves today. Who will we do them for? Will you serve Satan or our great Savior? So there's two real characters in our message today. The first I call the vile Antiochus Epiphanes. He is a servant of Satan. Now he is described in verses 21 down through verse 35 of this passage of Daniel. We've already seen him in Daniel chapter 8, but his description is basically this in life, and I put it on the screen. He's a vile monster. Verse 21 says he's a vile person. Vile. He's the brother of Cleopatra. If we, you remember last time, we talked about Cleopatra, and she became the queen of Egypt, but he's the brother. He was the king of Syria. She was the queen of Egypt, but he's eccentric and erratic cruel and cunning, slippery and smooth. It says even here, he obtains the kingdom by flatteries. He could really talk sweet. I'm sure if you met him on the street, you would say, I like him. 
He was a likable person. A lot of politicians are. He was a, the consummate, slick politician who could seduce you, if you will, with his, with his words, but then deceive you when he turns his back. He's like the devil, a seductive deceiver. He could make friends, but then win power for himself. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, his importance in Scripture is this, and it's really quite amazing that more space is given to this man than even to, let's say, Alexander the Great, where Alexander the Great, much is said about him in history, but not much about this man in a regular history book. But in the Bible, more is said of him than Alexander the Great. Why? Because the devastation that he brings upon the Jewish people, even in this chapter, brought about the celebration that the Jewish people have to this day called Hanukkah. So here we see Hanukkah prophesied to happen in the Bible. Now remember, Daniel wrote around the 530s B.C., B.C., before Christ. This happens in history like 170s B.C. So you do them this more than 300 years apart. So this is still, so Daniel's writing his prophecy. When we read Daniel 11, we think we're reading history, but we're reading both. We're reading prophecy that became history. And so the Hanukkah celebration is prophesied here in Daniel chapter 8 and 11. Another reason why he's so prominent in scripture is because his behavior more than any other man in human history is a type of the Antichrist, a servant of the devil. There's four things we want to see about Antiochus, and then we'll see the ones who served God and did exploits for God. But first, the vile Antiochus, who does exploits for Satan. We see, first of all, he crushes the high priest's office. And I want us to look in the Bible. So if you have your Bible open, make sure you're open to Daniel chapter 11, because we're not going to look at every specific fulfillment. I have them listed for you. Actually, I don't have everyone even listed for you in your notes, but I do have, do you guys, do you have that single sheet that's inserted in there? There are more specific fulfillments there that we'll even look at here today, but we're going to focus on just a few of them. The first thing we see is that he crushes the office of the high priest. So Antiochus takes control of the high priestly office when he takes control of power in this, in this kingdom. And they ruled the land of Palestine. And he replaces a good man. His name is high priest Onias III. He removes him from office at first. And then uh, four years after that, he will be killed. Onias is replaced by his brother who paid Antiochus for the office. He bribed him. So Antiochus used the high priest's office to crush a good man from it and make money from a compromising thief. So Onias' brother took the office, but then guess what? Onias' brother, his name was Jason, he had another brother who paid more money for the office. So basically Antiochus is crushing the office, the true purpose of the office. Because in all of Israel, what was the most important if you will, the most important position in the land. It was the position of high priest. They would wear a crown on their forehead that said, what did the crown say? Remember in the, in the book of Leviticus, it says, holiness to the Lord. This was a position of one who was set apart by God. And they were supposed to be high priest until they died. So here we see the high priest's office, if you will, being crushed. And that's what it says in verse number 22. It says here, with the arms of a flood shall they be overflown from before him and shall be broken. That word broken, that's where I'm using getting the word crushed, shall be crushed. And it says, yea, also the prince of the covenant. So I believe that prince of the covenant is reference to how Antiochus removed the high priest and replaced him with one brother, then another, and got rich in the meantime. He crushed this holy office. You know, someone who has no respect for the office of high priest, both in the Old Covenant 
and the new covenant is serving the devil. We read this morning our, our scripture memory verse. It says, brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment. And the next verse he says, again, I write a new commandment unto you. So in a way, it's, it's not new, it's old. But guess what? The new makes the old old, and the new never gets old. So he says, I write no new commandment unto you because he's writing about love. But who brought in the fullness of love? Jesus Christ. And when we think about the high priest's office, I think of the same thing. That in the Old Testament, the high priest's office was set apart by God. It was a holy office. Do you know we have a high priest today? Who's our high priest? And there's only, always, only one high priest. If anyone tries to put himself in that position, you're a servant of the devil. There's only one high priest at any time in the old or the new. And our high priest is who? Jesus Christ. And guess where he is? He's passed into the heavens in the heavenly sanctuary. So the way to serve God is to serve under the authority of, our, of the great high priest. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest, who died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the dead. See, the world and those who serve Satan want to minimize and mock and make mincemeat and crush this holy office. The second thing we see about Antiochus is he rages against God's people. I'm just going to summarize here because here's what's so fascinating about this passage. And, and I hope, you know, honestly, when you read through this, it, it can be a, maybe a little bit dry, but it's not dry when you realize you're reading prophecy. And then it's fulfilled so specifically. Now, here's the, here's the thing that's so specifically fulfilled about this passage is that in history, Antiochus made not one, but two campaigns of war against Egypt. And this passage prophesies of not one, but two campaigns against Egypt. So we want to see that. But Antiochus rages against God's people. How do you serve the devil? You lie. You murder. You become an idolater. And you will be a servant of the devil. And that's who Antiochus was. Multiple times he massacres people on a whim. He's a wicked idolater. And those he could not kill, he sought to destroy their faith. He rages against God's people. So let's look at these two prophetic predictions of Antiochus's Egyptian wars. And guess what I have for you? My famous, not my famous, but you know I love the Holman Bible Atlas and Actually, I was so amazed when I went to the Holman Bible Atlas, look what it says. It says here in the box, the campaigns of Antiochus against Egypt. And how many campaigns are there? Even the Holman's Bible Atlas brings it out, the first campaign and the second campaign. And the first campaign is in the book of Maccabees, but we can go right to the book of Daniel as well. In Daniel chapter 11, look at verse 25, where it says, He shall stir up his power, this is talking about Antiochus, and his courage against the king of the south. The king of the south is Egypt. And so Antiochus goes courageously against Egypt with a great army. And the king of the south, that's who? Talk to me. That's Egypt. It says, He shall be stirred up also to battle with a very great and mighty army. So you have two great and mighty armies. you got Antiochus's and you got Egypt. And it says, but he shall not stand. The Egyptian army shall not stand, but they shall forecast devices against him. So what's going on here? Antiochus stirs up his power to make war with Egypt, and he defeats Egypt. Now, here's the thing. Don't forget. Antiochus is the uncle of the king of Egypt. So I'm going to give you a couple names here. You're going to, I think you can remember this. Now, the king of Egypt that Antiochus fights, this king of the south, his name is Ptolemy VI. Now, Ptolemy is spelled with a P, like Ptolemy, but the, the P is silent. Ptolemy VI. So say it with me. Ptolemy VI. So, but here's the thing that's interesting is Antiochus was the uncle of Ptolemy VI. So you could call Antiochus Uncle Anti. He's an aunt and an uncle. And Antiochus, yeah, okay, you get my little drip. Okay, so he's Uncle 
ante, and he's fighting against his nephew, Ptolemy the sixth, who is the son of Cleo. Patra. <laughs> so that's what's going on. So he goes down, he defeats Ptolemy the sixth. But here's an amazing thing also that was fulfilled in this prophecy. If you look at verse 25, at the end of verse 25, it speaks here about how there are traitors in Ptolemy's inner circle. His trusted counselors betray him. Look at verse 25. It says, he shall not stand, for they shall forecast devices against him. That's the prophecy of traitors in his inner circle. Verse 26, yea, they shall feed of a portion of his meat. They that feed of a portion of his meat shall destroy him. So those who were eating at his table turned against Ptolemy and sided with Uncle Antiochus. Okay, so so the the counselors of Ptolemy the Sixth sided with his uncle, King Antiochus Epiphanes, and that happened in history. It's a specific fulfillment. Here's another thing that's so interesting. So Antiochus and his first campaign is the solid red line, and if you go to Pelusium, you see right here Pelusium, and it says here on the map Antiochus defeats Ptolemy the Sixth about 170 B.C. in Pelusium. But meanwhile, he defeats Ptolemy VI. But guess what? Ptolemy VI has a brother. I know this is really going to confuse you. But you know what his brother's name is? Ptolemy VII. Okay. So we got Ptolemy VI, Ptolemy VII. And at the meantime, they crown Ptolemy VII king in Alexandria. So what does Antiochus do with Ptolemy VI? They sit down. They look each other at the eye. They're eating dinner together. And while they're looking at each other in the eye, you know what they do? Exactly what it says in verse number 27. Read it with me. It says, both these kings' hearts, that's Antiochus with Ptolemy the Sixth, shall, shall be to do mischief. They shall speak lies at one table, but it shall not prosper. So what do they do? They both pretend they need each other. But they lie to each other in the face. Antiochus lies to Ptolemy saying he will help him reconquer Egypt and restore Ptolemy VI as king. He's lying. He wants the power in Egypt. Ptolemy VI agrees with his plan, but he's lying. He's not going to submit to Antiochus. So Antiochus hoped to take power over all Egypt, while Ptolemy hoped to remain in power and remove Antiochus from any influence in Egypt. And actually, history tells us Ptolemy VI was just waiting for his uncle Antiochus to leave so that he could unite with his brother against their uncle and form a coalition to have a joint rule in Egypt. And that's what happened. So that was fulfilled. They sat at the same table. Now, this is prophecy 300 years before. Imagine prophesying a political lie 300 years before it happens with the actual people that are doing it. You know, it's things like this that make liberal scholars, when they read Daniel 11, they say, it's impossible. Daniel couldn't have written that because his prophecy is so specifically fulfilled. But God knows the future, right? Okay, so... That was his first campaign. Let me look with you just for a moment. Let's look at his second campaign, verse 29. Because look what it says in verse 29. Here's the second campaign of Antiochus to Egypt. Oh, and by the way, I'm sorry, I meant to say, when Antiochus went back to Syria and he passed through Judea, he stopped at Jerusalem and massacred thousands of Jewish people. He was so upset because on the way back he heard that Ptolemy 6 and 7 were uniting against him and he he took out his anger against the jewish people and massacred and did some things but then then it says he went back in verse 29 at the time appointed he shall return so here's the second campaign and come toward the south but it shall not be as the former or as the latter in other words he will not have the same success that he had the first time it says for the ships of shittim shall come against him therefore he shall be grieved and return now Here's the amazing thing. The ships of Shittim refer to Rome. And this is exactly what happened in history. That 
Antiochus, when he went back to Egypt, was met by the Roman ambassador. Because remember, remember the four kingdoms? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece. We're in the Grecian period now. And then after Greece is going to be Rome. So who comes up against Antiochus, the rising power of Rome? We're almost to the end of the Greek Empire. And now the Roman Empire is surging. And so the ships of Chittim show the rise of Rome. And they come against him. And it says he shall be grieved. And that's what happened. The Roman ambassador literally, they say in history, drew a circle in the sand, in the sand around Antiochus. And they gave him an ultimatum. They say, you either go home or you're going to have a, a war with Rome. Home or Rome. Your choice, Uncle Andy. Guess what his choice was? He says, I better go home because Rome was rising in power. But he was humiliated and he was angry. And so in his rage, in his indignation, he took it out against who? Verse number 30, what does it say? Against God. Against the people of the Holy Covenant. Against the Holy Covenant. He has indignation against the Holy Covenant. And he returns back to Syria. But now, when he goes through Judea again, he commits what Jesus referred to as the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet. Daniel spoke about it in Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 9, and here again, it's really prophetic, and it's a type of how that what the Antichrist will do as well in the coming day. So let's look at the passage here, because next we see, not only does he crush the office of the high priest, he rages against the people of God, but on his return from Egypt, he humiliated, he leads in this great transgression, he invades the land of Israel, and then he pollutes the sanctuary of God. Verse 31. Look at verse 31. It says, An arm shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary. The sanctuary of what? I love that. The sanctuary of strength. And shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that make it Desolate. Again, specific fulfillments in history of what happened here. Now, the house of God is called the sanctuary of strength. That word strength is, is translated three times in this same chapter as a fortress, like a fort. Now, you could say that the temple had become militarized. There was temple police, and there, in a sense, there were soldiers protecting the temple, it was a sanctuary that had become like a fortress of strength. But I believe there's a spiritual element to this idea that the sanctuary is a fortress. Jesus Christ is the ultimate fortress for us. God himself is our strength. He is our refuge. He is our high tower. And the sanctuary is to typify that we go to the house of God to find strength, right? We need strength to live. We need power to, to overcome the trials and the difficulties of life, which we all have. And so he says the sanctuary is a place where you go to find safety and refuge. It's a stronghold to find encouragement and help to live for God in hard times. And Antiochus wants to pollute it. That's a servant of Satan. When you seek to pollute that which God wants to keep holy, when you want, when that place, which is a place of strength and refuge and safety, becomes a place of weakness, that's what Antiochus wants to do to the, to the temple of God. And that's what Satan's servants want to do even to this day to his church. So he pollutes the sanctuary. And what does this say as well? It says, what did he take away? What, is it, what does it say in verse 31? Talk to me. What does it say he took away in verse 31? What does it say? The daily sacrifice. Now, so in other words, that was foundationally, that was foundational to basically everything else they did, right? If you took away this, the daily sacrifice, you can remove any other aspect of the law. And that's exactly what he did. So the sacrifices were forbidden, but so was keeping the Sabbath. 
and other Old Testament ceremonies were for, forbidden and the temple was polluted. Then he says, they shall, they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. And Antiochus literally brought in a idol to the god Zeus, the Greek god Zeus. And he forced and, uh, the, the people to worship this wicked idol or else done. Face death. So it was either embrace this wicked culture that he was trying to put upon the people or face death. The next thing we see the vile Antiochus, what he does as a servant of Satan. And remember, this is a all a prophetic description of this cruel and slippery smooth monster is that he corrupts the apostate Israelites. Beginning with, who does he have in his back pocket? The most influential Jew in the land, which is the high priest. And working with the high priest, he gets other Jewish people to join with him in his spreading of Greek culture, especially the Greek gods, forcing the people to worship their deities at the threat of death. And so many corrupt apostate Israelites join with Antiochus. They find common ground with him. And they desert and forsake the word of God. Now, in this passage, what also struck me about this passage from verse 21 down to verse 35 is the repeat of the word covenant. For example, we saw it in verse 22, the prince of the covenant. And we said that referred to the high priest. And then we see in verse number 28 of Antiochus, it says his heart shall be against the holy covenant. Now, the covenant speaks of the word of God, the agreement that God had made with his people in these Old Testament times through Moses as a mediator. Verse 30 also, it says he has indignation against the holy covenant. But I want you to carefully look now at the end of verse 30 and 31. It's not talking about Antiochus. It's talking about the Jewish people who were compromising with Antiochus. So look at this, please, with me. In verse 30, it says, He shall even return, that's Antiochus, and have intelligence or common ground or support from intelligence with them that, what? Forsake the Holy Covenant. So these were the people of God in name who were forsaking God. Isn't that something? We have to be aware of that. And then verse 31 says, His arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice. And verse 32, And such as do wickedly, again, not talking about Antiochus, it's talking about the compromised apostate Jewish people, they that do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by what? Flattery, smooth talk. Be careful and watch out for smooth talk and know your Bible, dear friend. More than ever, believe me, we have to know the word of God or we're going to be caught up in the corruption of the sweet-talking flatteries of this world. One way that you could perhaps tell that you are being sucked into the culture and way of our world is if you could watch the Super Bowl halftime and think that's good entertainment. If there's anything where I just constantly see the devil all over the place, it's in a Super Bowl halftime that has the approval if you will, the approval of the world. Unbelievable. I watch, or if I were to watch that, I have to literally turn away because it is so grievous to my spirit as they parade satanic, literally satanic elements before us as if this is 
this should be acceptable of immorality and wickedness and fornication that is paraded, been literally paraded before us on many of these Super Bowl halftime. That's just an example. Let us not allow this culture to corrupt us. See, Antiochus will corrupt the spiritually weak. Those he cannot corrupt, he will kill the spiritually strong. And when people are faced with such a choice, it's easy to take the easy way out. We need to stand with God. And so that's the vile Antiochus. Let's look secondly and quickly at the victorious Maccabees, the servants of God. And they are referred to in verse 32. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And this is what history tells us. And we, we've learned about this, and I've told you before, of Mattathias, the priest who was living in Modin with his five sons. You see, so Antioch, Antiochus did terrible things in Jerusalem and got many people on his side in Jerusalem. Then he sent out his emissaries and ambassadors and generals to the surrounding towns. And one such place they came was to Modin, where priest Mattathias was living with his five sons. And Antiochus's general ordered Mattathias to offer a pig flesh on the altar. And Mattathias refused. And another Jewish person went up, pushed Mattathias out of the way to offer that pig flesh. And Mattathias slew the Jewish man. And then he killed Antiochus's general. And they fled out of Modin. Here's Modin between the two yellow arrows here. They flew from there, if you follow the dotted red line, up to the Gophna Hills. And there, a small army of rebels began to form around Mattathias. And then Mattathias died, and his son Judas took his place. And Judas led a movement after the death of his father. And the height of the power, the Jewish army became strong and conquerors. And they, 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 they won battles and victories until finally they went into Jerusalem and drove Antiochus and his army out of, out of Jerusalem, out of the temple. And against unbelievable odds, they rededicated the temple to God. And that's the celebration of Hanukkah, led by the Maccabees. And Judas was the hero. And that's why... In the days of Jesus, Judas was such a popular name, one of his disciples, of course. But today, that's a name that's been quite destroyed by that Judas, chosen by Jesus. Don't name your son Judas. That's not a good thing to do to your son, right? Do you know any Ju anybody who's Judas? I don't know. Anyway, so they reclaimed the temple. And, and I mentioned this also in the past, but remember in Daniel chapter 8, I think in verse 13, it says there's 2,300 days I believe that it goes from the time that Onias, the high priest, was deposed that we mentioned in verse 21, the 2,300 days. I think that was in about uh, 170 or so. And then to 164, it gives you that, that amount of years, I think about seven or so years. And so that 2,300 days go from the time Onias was deposed until the temple was rededicated to God. But the four things here is the first thing is they know their God. And I like that. It doesn't just say they know God. But the people that do know their God. See, a lot of people will say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. They don't know Jesus Christ. You have to know Jesus personally, intimately, as your Savior and friend. Have you been born again? Are you living for him? Are you living for yourself? Are you living for your own pleasures of this life? Jesus says, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ. Paul said, oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. We have to personally know our God. And it says, they, are, they be strong. The people that do know their God shall be strong. Knowing God is not boring. The knowledge of God is not stale. But the knowledge of God gives strength and even success because this word is strong. Don't we want to be strong? How are you going to be strong? How are you going to be strong spiritually? They that know their God shall be strong. Get into the word of God. Be in prayer and will bravely stand against the wickedness 
all around us. And then it says they have wisdom. They that be, but the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits, mighty things, mighty accomplishments. And they that understand among the people shall instruct many. The word understand is the word wisdom. They that have wisdom among the people. What do you do with the wisdom? What does it say in verse 33? What do you do with that wisdom? Do you keep it to yourself? You do what with it? What does it say? Verse 33. Talk to me now. You, you, you share it. Share it. Spread that wisdom out. And wisdom is the skillful application of knowledge. You can know something in your head, but wisdom is the ability to skillfully apply that wisdom. When it comes to our knowledge of God, we can know God in our head and know all about him. But wisdom is the skillful application then of taking what I know about him and applying the knowledge of God to the actual trials and temptations and difficulties. So take the knowledge of God and apply it to my marriage. I saw last night that a baseball player making millions of dollars was arrested for strangling his wife. Terrible thing. But there are Christians, people who say they're saved, would yet, and I don't, I'm not saying he, I don't know about this baseball player, what his faith is, but I'm saying people who do say they're saved sometimes abuse their wives. Shame. You see, they say, oh, I know I'm supposed to love my wife, but then you have to apply that and love her with how you talk to her, how you touch her, how you treat her. You love her. That's applying what you know into real life. So we need to skillfully apply the knowledge of God to the moral complex realities of life so that we can be truly successful and prosperous. And this same word, understand, look it up, search it out. Joshua chapter one. It's this is how we'll be of good success. This is how we'll prosper when we have the wisdom of God. And then it says they endure persecution. They that be strong, they that do know their God shall be strong. So have the knowledge of God, have strength from God, have wisdom from God, and then endure. Endure the persecutions. Now look what it says here. It says, they that understand among the people shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by the sword, by flame, by captivity, by spoil many days. Now when they shall fall, they shall be hoping with a little help. They shall be hoping. I'm sure you talk this way when you go home at night. Say, boy, I was hoping today with a little help. I actually love the King James language. We don't talk that way, but it's beautiful. There's something beautiful. You know what that means? If you look up the word hoping, you know what it means? It means help. So they were helped with a little help. When you have God's help, how much do you really need to have enough? A little of God's help is a lot. That's how I read that. They were hoping with a little help, but because they had help in God, they had a lot of help. They had a lot of strength. You know, it's like the widow who cried out. You know, the Gentile woman, she said, I'll just take a crumb, Jesus. You know, just a crumb from you. Because a crumb from Jesus Christ will satisfy you forever. And so we need the help from God that will go a long way throughout our life. You know, here's what's an amazing thing, too, is that the Maccabees are, again, this is all prophecy, right? So they are referenced by prophecy in Daniel chapter 11, not in the history of the Old Testament. They're, they actually happen between the Old and the New Testament, right? You with me? But you know where they are found? Not by name. But I believe they're referred to, if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And much, not all, of what the writer of Hebrews says refers to the book of Daniel. Go with me. Turn with me, please. I want to read a passage of Hebrews chapter 11. Then I'm going to close with an illustration. We'll be done. Hebrews chapter 11. It says... In verse 33, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promise. That's the Maccabees. Who stopped the mouths of lions? Who did that? That's Daniel. Quenched the violence of fire? Who did that? The three Hebrew children. 
Escape the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong. Wax valiant in fight. Turn to flight the armies of aliens who did all that. Well, others, I'm sure, in the Old Testament, but the Maccabees did all of that. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Verse 36, others had trial of cruel mockings, scourgings, bonds, imprisonments. They were stoned, sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, tormented. That's the Maccabees. They went up to the, that area there were, where there were many caves. And that's where they hid out, and their army grew. It's amazing that I believe the Maccabees are referred to in this great chapter of faith because they knew God. They were strong. They had wisdom from God and lived out their faith and they endured. That's how we're going to serve God right there. That's good four characteristics of serving God. Who are you going to serve? So I told you a few weeks ago I got the book, The Crash of the Dragonfly. And it tells the story of how the Brooks Point Bible Church was started in southern Palawan, which, of course, is now being led by one of our missionaries, Jethro Malakow. It was started by a missionary couple named Rick and Carolyn Searles. But they did not go to the Philippines to start a church. They went to the Philippines to support the other missionaries that were there and do missionary aviation, flying supplies up to other remote areas for the other missionaries. He didn't even know how to speak Tagalog. They went to fly an airplane. He was a Marine fighter pilot in Vietnam. He wanted to serve God. But his plane crashed outside of Brooks Point. And as he was carrying the plane out and Working with the other tribes, he got a burden because they were worshiping the devil in their animism and their false religion. Meanwhile, Joe and Faye Malakow knocked on his door. They heard he had been in an accident. They said, we're, just, we're praying for you. And here's Joe and Faye Malakow, the parents of Jethro Malakow. So here's Joe and Faye. They knocked on Rick Searle's door, and they became friends. And as they began to talk, Joe and Faye began to ask Rick about starting a church. Now, I don't know so much about Joe, but if Faye wants you to do something, she's going to stay after you to do it, right? She's that kind of person. And so at first he said, I, I didn't come here to start a church. And he was like, I he didn't even want to pray about starting a church. You know, they kept saying, pray about starting a church. We need a church here in southern Palawan. And after a while, Rick believed that God wanted him to start a church and that Joe and Faye Malakow would be his partner. The thing is, like I mentioned, he didn't even know how to speak Tagalog. So when he went back to the mission field, he had to go to Manila first, and he learned Tagalog. After about a year of training, he finally knew well, en uh, well enough Tagalog to give his first message. After his first message in Tagalog, he went home. His wife said, how did it go? And he was depressed. He said, there were two girls in the front row. They just laughed at me the whole time. One time he introduced Joe and Faye at another church. And now the story is that the word for heart in Tagalog is what? Puso. And the word for cat in Tagalog is Pusa. <laughs> So he introduced Joe and Faye one day. He says, now, they're small of stature, but they have big cats. Okay? And everybody laughed, of course. And those are the kinds of mistakes anyone would make in studying a language. But he kept at it. Kept at it. They went to Southern Palawan. Rick and his wife, Carolyn, along with Joe and Faye, and they teamed together to start a beautiful church that would reach up into those mountainous areas and bring the gospel to them. As they were get, just getting going, they found a church building. They were cutting the tall grass around the church. Joe stooped down on one knee, and he was cutting the grass away. And all of a sudden, a man saw a black cobra snake tail out of, the, out of his pant leg. The, and, he, and Joe didn't even know that there was a snake crawling up his leg. 
And the man grabbed the snake and he lopped off the head in one swift motion. So they had so many trials like this. But Joe later said, the Lord used that incident to teach him that the devil wants to sneak into our lives. And he wants to corrupt us. And he wants to tempt us to destroy us. So we have to always be alert to the deceitfulness of sin and to the works of Satan. Because there's Antiochus Epiphanes. He's that devil that wants to sneak into our life. Culture that wants to corrupt your faith wants to sneak into our lives. But we have to be careful and we must serve God in this day. Let's serve our God. Let's stand together as we pray today. And thank God for this wonderful work in the Philippines. Because God touched a man who had seizures all the time. And ultimately, he had a stroke, and he had to turn the work over to his son. But they that be strong, they that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And boy, we have seen exploits for God in the Philippines, haven't we? Those of you who have gone there, may God use us in our city to know our God, to be strong, and to do exploits. Father, please now work. Forgive us of our sins, and we thank you for Jesus, our great high priest, passed into the heavens. Do you know Jesus? Do you cry out like Paul that I may know him? Because knowing him is better than the whole world. Everything this world has to give us is like a pile of dung. In comparison to being found in Jesus and knowing Jesus and pressing forth to be like Jesus. And as I shared that verse last week, let us walk by this same rule. Let us mind the same thing that we need to know Jesus and be strong in him, the power of his might. We need the wisdom of God. And we need to endure to serve the Lord. If that's your heart to keep serving Jesus in these days, just put your hand up and say, oh, Lord, help me. Put your hand up to the Lord and say, help me with a little help, oh, Lord. Even as you help the Maccabees of old to stand and be strong and overcome the wicked, vile Antiochus Epiphanes. Oh, God, help us to be strong. Help us to love to love you, God, to love one another, to love all men, even in our city. Give us love in our hearts, oh God. Help us not to be hard in heart. Give us a tenderness by your Holy Spirit, for the fruit of your Spirit is love, the sweetest fruit, and joy. So, Lord, bless us, we pray. Keep us in your care and love as we fight the good fight for you in Jesus' name. Amen.